All right, hello, and welcome to the first inaugural podcast episode of the National Rural Education Association. Um, I am currently joined with Jared Bigham and Alan Pratt. You guys can say hi now. Hey, this is Jared. <laughs> hey, this is Alan Pratt. I'm happy to be here and uh, happy to get this started. And uh, we're excited to kind of bring um, rural issues to the forefront that touch all communities and uh, rural areas across America and kind of highlight the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. So let's let's start off real quick. Uh, a couple of things. One is um, if you guys will introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your background education and what brings you to this topic area. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the organization itself. So I, I'm younger, so I'm going to go first. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fourth generation educator. My family's like the education mafia in southeast Tennessee. <laughs> um, my great grandmother had a one room schoolhouse where she was a teacher about a half mile from our farm. Oh, nice. And so uh, I grew up either in a school or a church because my daddy was a choir director in addition to being a principal. And so it's, uh, it's also a, a unique experience having your your father's your principal. It's, it's hard to get away with much when you got that <laughs> oversight. But uh, it was just education was in my DNA, and and uh, I was excited to uh, be a teacher and a coach, and eventually uh, got into administration and some other some other professional things. But um, uh, oddly enough, I, I, I coached against uh, Dr. Pratt, so. Oh, nice. Uh, we've got that history between us. Never won, never won against him, but we did did coach against him. Excellent. We, what we could do is have, like, a competition of ideas, you know, between the two of you. So Yeah, we can give you a scorecard and <laughs> yeah. get from there. Yeah, <laughs> See who's good. more accurate in their statements, you know. We'll be a fight, fact checker over so the So we're going to do the Pinocchios like they do in the – newspapers let's, and let's do it fact check us and all that stuff i think that'd be awesome <laughs> I, I, I don't agree with i don't want to be fact <laughs> there you go yeah it's only a lie if you don't believe it correct that's, yeah or if true. everybody believes it ah, there you go that's yeah, right. <laughs> then it's not a lie either yeah um all right so uh alan yeah uh so obviously the director of the national rural education association um been a teacher and a coach uh 20 something years and been in rural schools for the majority of that time. Um, been a principal. You, where did you teach? Cause so I taught at uh, Whitwell High School first, South okay. Pittsburgh Southeast High School. US. Okay. Yeah, and then I uh, coached at Oak Ridge High School. I was in North Georgia for a while, but uh, most of the time in Marion County Schools and obviously principal at Mar uh, South Pittsburgh High School. And uh, that's where I met Jared. Jared and I met probably 2010. Maybe 2009, something like that. Almost a decade. We've got our uh, decade anniversary coming there up. There you huh? go. I don't know what anniversary level that would be, what we need to buy <laughs> I think, each other. I think but 10 years silver. So I mean, at least a dinner and a movie is what I'm thinking. But. Okay, it's not going to happen on both accounts. So, um, <laughs> no, uh, so, and you know, J Jared has been um, kind of the forefront a lot on rural education in Tennessee, and Jared. Uh, Went to uh, the National Rural Conference, I guess probably 08, 09, mm -hmm. and uh, came back. And uh, Tennessee had a charter, a, a, mm -hmm. a, a state affiliate, probably from the 20s to the, what, 60s or 70s. Yep. And then it kind of went away. And okay. uh, Jared was part of bringing Tennessee Rural Ed back uh, along with some other folks. But Jared was the driving force. And our, I guess our first 
connection was uh, through uh, working on my doctorate at Liberty University and mm-hmm. met Jared there. But we also, uh, Jared uh, was honored with the, abil- the opportunity to bring, um, at the time, uh, Secretary Ar- D- uh, Duncan to Tennessee to meet with rural educators. Oh, nice. And Tennessee Rural Ed set that up with, you know, Jared doing the mo- majority of that. And uh, that's kind of how this started and us kind of kicking back to Tennessee Rural Ed and... Um, it's been a good time, and, and there's been a lot of things going on in rural. And, you know, we talked uh, several months ago about the what what has changed from, like, 2010 to now in our careers and kind of what's going on. And, and the people we've met and the places we've been has been pretty amazing for two guys that were in two small school systems. Yeah, and, and I think um, we both were principal of 7 through 12 high schools with about – almost a little under 400 students, so we have that in common as well. Yeah, we were principals at the same time. He was at Copper Basin High School in, in, in South Pittsburgh, and it was 7-12, 7-12. We competed against each other, but we also did a lot of work together, so uh, it's been really good. And then, of course, we uh, two gentlemen that are that worked with us were Ryan Goodman and uh, Jason Bell. They're both at Polk County Schools now. But that's kind of how this kind of whole, whole thing started, and Jared – you know, we've been through a lot of different avenues, a lot of different, you know, um, I guess viewpoints on rural education from what it looks like in southeast Tennessee to, I guess, coast to coast in rural education. So we've had the opportunity to see a lot. Yeah, travel a lot. And, and that, um, I think each rural community across the state and across the country is, is so unique and they've got that colloquial uh, vibe about them and uh, each wants to be a little bit individualistic and that, but I think that's what makes rural communities great is that they are uh, individualistic and unique and and uh, actually want to be represented at the state and federal level uh, and so there's a lot of policy issues out there that are worth fighting for for rural education. Yeah and, and uh, you know we look at you know our roles and what we're doing, but our, our roles in looking at the national scene for rural education, you know, uh, without Dr. Silver help and University of Tennessee Chattanooga to bring a podcast forward for us, this has been a great opportunity in the School of Ed and the, our department here at UTC. But, uh, you know, I, I think probably highlighting a couple of things that, I mean, some several things that we're going to kind of address as we add episodes and because and, we're going to look at this from all community standpoint far as it could be extracurricular to academic to the political side to school board i mean so anything that's going to touch a rural community especially around which is really a big topic now is the economic development and community development of workforce development for rural communities and their success and sustainability been moving forward so jared you want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of what brought us to this point yeah uh, and, and that's the the space i'm in now is rural workforce development uh, with the Tennessee Chamber, and so uh, it it is a challenge for these communities that um, geographically are isolated and isolated from the typical supports you might find in urban communities like foundations and uh, even healthcare and some of the things like that that impact a rural community and you don't have those wraparound supports. So there's a lot more attention uh, being paid to how do we support rural communities, how do we get talent pipelines created there. And um, so that's that's the majority of what I work on now in Tennessee across the state. And then uh, looking at the national level, 
Uh, I know there's more focus and emphasis in how we can uh, help rural communities, in, whether it's agriculture or it's um, mountain communities, whatever it may be. How do you create those talent pipelines in the communities that are isolated geographically? So uh, it's exciting work, and I, um, I can't wait to highlight some of that work on this podcast and, and some of the great things that are not only going on in Tennessee but other states uh, across the country that are doing innovative things in rural communities. So. Uh, hopefully we'll get to highlight some some good work through this podcast. And I, and I think you hit a good point about the pipeline, the connection of jobs and keeping those communities active. But I know we'll go deeper into that as we move on to different episodes. Uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about our organization. We were founded in 1907, National Rural Education Association. Uh, we've been kind of a standalone organization, a nonprofit since the late 70s. Uh, we currently serve members in all 50 states and six countries across the, uh, the, the globe. We have um, members in, like I said, all 50 states. We have 42 state affiliates that are uh, actively working um, daily on legislative and educational issues, uh, providing resources, training, professional development in rural communities. You know, Jared mentioned a one-room schoolhouse. We serve schools, one-room schoolhouses in Wyoming, uh, North Dakota, Nebraska, and uh, Montana. Uh, and even Idaho, all the way up to larger school districts uh, that are considered rural that may have 10 or 15,000 students in it. So it's a pretty unique uh, kind of setup. And uh, like I said, we just want to talk a little bit about what we're trying to do and then talk a little bit about upcoming uh, information that we want to bring to the podcast. Hey, you said something uh, that uh, reminded me, you're talking about different sizes of, of rural schools and and. Um, what the definition of rural actually is. That's something I know that's been uh, somewhat nebulous in, in years past to try to come up with a definition. So what, what definition do you use now on the national stage when somebody says, what's rural? What, what does that actually mean? So we, we use, uh, if you believe and feel you're rural, then you're rural. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Because I think the federal government has probably like 40 different definitions of some form of rural or community. And then if you use the NCES, uh, you know, rural locale codes or locale codes, that may change, may be a little different. So uh, we decided a long time ago just to, if you believe it, you're with us. Yeah, that's great because there's also some crossover between rural and small towns. I know there's a definition for small towns. But that may be in an urban setting, so it you can't just assume if it's a small town, it's in a rural community. So, yeah, that that's been something that's somewhat of a moving target to define that. But I I love your definition. If you're if you think you're rural, you're rural. And I don't know why people kind of have to define it, really. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting to uh, to see the different takes on rural. Well, I've never had to explain that. Usually, when people hear my accent, they they <laughs> Pretty much no. I'm from a rural community. <laughs> yeah, I would say you're correct. <laughs> yeah, I suffer a little bit from the same thing, although I had to sharpen my accent a little bit from what it used to be. So um, so my name is Chris Silver, and I'm um, one of the primary researchers here in um, um, our learning and leadership doctoral program, which is here at UTC, and um, consult on a variety of different kinds of data-driven projects and it ranges from corporate projects to schools to uh, you pretty much name it so um, but for the most part be the technical help in this process as well so um, so one thing I think it's important to mention from a lay person's perspective is um, 
you all you all aren't just the hair club president, but you're also a client, right? You both grew up in rural environments. You both have worked in those environments, off and on, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I want to caution the listener, I think that's important, is is that you all aren't ivory tower academics, right? Y'all are from the ground up. You know, y'all y'all have landed where you have because you worked your way into that situation. So, um, I wonder if y'all could talk a little bit about that sort of background of how you ended up coming into academia in some capacity. Sure. Um, and I've come somewhat full circle. I grew up in a very small rural community in southeast Tennessee in, in a little town called Turtletown. And um, after I uh, graduated from college, I taught overseas in China for a little while and then cool. came back and taught in a rural um, school district in uh, Eastern North Carolina, and then eventually came back home and, and taught in uh, uh, Polk County in Turtletown, uh, and was a principal. And then eventually, in seeking my doctorate degree, I started uh, getting more interested in uh, the national stage and the conversation around rural education and some of the policy things, and uh, eventually started teaching uh, some classes at the collegiate level and and. Uh, that gave me the opportunity and really the hunger to uh, dive more into philosophy, philosophy of education and uh, how it, rural education is different from other forms of education and the opportunities that students have. And uh, there's some definite blessings with being in a rural community in a small school, but there's also some challenges that come with that. So it's been interesting uh, in my professional career to, to work with uh, future educators uh, in in colleges of ed that are going into the field and seeing uh, how they're going to tackle some of these challenges. So, uh, the definitely the uh, uh, the academic side has been of interest to me, and and uh, it, it's also provided a, a I think a platform for NREA because there's there's some. Uh, research heavy sides to the to the organization and folks that are members that do research around uh, issues in rural education. So uh, there's a, a lot of voices out there that NREA tries to lift up in these conversations. And so uh, it's great to be a part of that. And that's one of the things I'm excited about this podcast is is to elevate some of those voices even more to get the word out there of uh, what's going on in rural ed and and how we can support those communities. So uh, it's it's been personally fulfilling, but also professionally fulfilling in the different roles I've been in, especially when working with future educators that are going in the field. Yeah, and I don't think Jared probably gives himself enough credit on the fact of um, doing the work uh, with a, with helping folks uh, from rural areas achieve their doctorate degree, which he's been on a lot of committees and and also chaired a lot of those uh, committees, so he's done a lot of work in that area. So uh, probably needs to give himself a little pat on the back for that. So uh, well, I, I'm never shy about giving myself credit, but I appreciate that you're. I'm I'm <laughs> blushing on the podcast right now for those that can't see it. Not really, but anyway, he, he's he's trying. Um, he's yeah, um, I, I try to wear humble, but it doesn't fit. It's all it's all good. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think for me, looking at. Um, you know, working in rural school districts and working in rural communities, living in rural communities, it's pretty challenging 
um, and I think sometimes if you're only in that lens of working in those types of districts, you don't see some of the, the um, inequities that are out there. And then uh, the ability to, you know, I worked at the State Department in Tennessee and the, and the travel and, and see other areas, you realize that there are some issues and there's some things that are not equal. And it takes, you know, the whole group of NREA and our membership and what we're trying to do from the research side to the practitioners to philanthropic um, areas to help those. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of come forefront for me is that anything pushed nationally from the department in D.C. or from the State Department, nine times out of ten is not going to fit the model needed for those rural communities. So I think the... You know, one of our things that we're looking at doing is trying to help those communities understand what they can do with the incentives or, you know, unfunded mandates that do come down uh, and how to make it work for your community and, and not take a cookie-cutter approach. And mm -hmm. that's been a big challenge. But um, Well, also accessing resources, yeah. too, is a, is a huge challenge. Um, you know, most rural school districts don't have a full-time grant writer, yep. and so it falls on the shoulders of a principal or a guidance counselor or teacher to try to write a grant um, that's pretty time consuming. So just the ability to access resources is, is not on a level playing field, usually for a rural community, rural school, um, because they don't have the capacity to, to go after it. Yeah, I think you're, you're dead on. And, and, and I, you know, you look, you look at the grants that come out of the federal grants that come out and, and we always look at the list of who makes it from rural, who doesn't make it from rural. And I will say the federal government has done a better job of identifying and making sure that the rural areas are, uh, get a, an easier, more even playing field. Uh, there's several legislation items coming up the, in, in January that, um, that are going to identify rural education needs that we're, we're happy to talk about moving forward and, and hope to get a couple of, uh, a Senator, uh, U.S. Senator on and a uh, rural rep house representative uh, uh, on to our show and, and to talk a little bit about kind of what they're thinking about in rural America. So uh, those things that we're kind of pushing for, as well as researchers to talk about what they're doing in rural areas as well. Cool. No, it's really interesting. So what, what are some things, so somebody asks about the, the NREA, um, and they're like, okay, well, what what are some initiatives that the NREA is known for? You know, if they're like, okay, you know, this sounds like an interesting topic, interesting concept. So, you know, what what are some what are some of the big maybe big wins that you guys have had as an organization? I mean, I, th I think you know our shift at our conference has been uh, we do a national conference every year, and it's grown, and and I think that's a, a place for bring people together to, that are all like minded around rural education. And like I said, we're not a superintendent's co uh, association, so we're teachers, uh, administrators, school board members, um, higher ed research. So there's, there's all different types of folks that come to our conference, and I think that's been a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I think um, in 2016, we released a rural uh, research agenda, our, our rural research team produced a rural research agenda, which is used by uh, the federal government to award grants and to mm. identify those areas for uh, rural research, which has been good. The two rural research centers 
that were awarded last year. Harvard has one on the education side, and University of Missouri has on rural health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, both, both part of what our rural research agenda, and, and, and part of our work is you talked about our connection. So I'm, an, I'm an advisor on the Harvard uh, Education Committee for their Rural Research Center. Mm-hmm. Serve a lot of advisory roles with our organization, uh, with uh, different organizations and also universities. Uh, so those are big items. Uh, we're moving a lot towards how we connect with jobs, community, workforce development, and how we can help kind of, I guess, solidify that engagement with um, stakeholders from the community or region and the school system. So that's been a big part moving forward. Uh, we're working right now with the Gates Foundation and uh, Rural Schools Collaborative. Uh, they're out of Wisconsin, and we're doing the I Am a Rural Teacher project. So mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be doing some filming and doing some things on our website and their website. And one of the things we'll do is we'll take some of those stories from Wisconsin or Wyoming or Northeast. Uh, New Hampshire is one of the early adopters of trying to get people to talk about why they are rural teachers, and we'll have them on the podcast as well and talk about rural teaching. So that's kind of been there's a lot of different angles a lot of different aspects uh, one of the things is growth of our state affiliates when, when I took the job we had 32 and we're up to 42 so we've added 10 in that's three awesome. and a half years so those have been good things for us yeah good. Can, can we go back to something you said you're on a uh, advisory committee at Harvard mm-hmm. and so yeah. do you ever just drop in a conversation when I was at Harvard because uh, I'll tell you what, I totally do. I do that at UTC all the time. I'm like, when I was at UTC, we yeah, used there to. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I went for just a week-long program at Harvard a couple of years ago, and I bought shirts, hats, yeah, I wear them. And, and, and I, I completely, because I stayed in the dorms, I'd say, when I was at Harvard, when I was living in the dorms at Harvard, you know, even though it was five days, I, I dropped that in a conversation as much as possible. That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it could be a, a positive or a negative. depends on what community you're in. But um, I, they've been really good about reaching out. Uh, I'm also on, a, there's a group called iCivics I Learning, and they're, out, they're based out of Harvard as well. They're doing some civic work, and uh, I'm on their that's not their advisory. I guess their steering committee with that as well. So I'm really on two. Uh, it's been really interesting to kind of see their take on rule and understand what rule is in their eyes, and how it's different East Coast to West Coast and mm-hmm. in between. So, no, it's good. So uh, when when you think about um, when you think about some of these things that you all have been talking about, what are what's something that or maybe a an aha moment or some piece of, of you know, something you've learned in this process of being involved, you know, for each of you, like what, what is something that, that in being involved, you've learned that you didn't expect? Uh, I think one thing I've learned uh, through working with NREA that was a surprise to me, is just the different types of rural communities across the country. And, Interesting. And how rural is defined in, in different regions um, you know, you, you've got everything from agriculture communities that uh, might only be one family within miles of each other, and and um, you've got these small schools where these agriculture families send their kids from um, farm, you know, these farming communities, and and uh, those community schools have been there forever, but it covers just you know, hundreds of square miles with just very few families there, all the way to an uh, Appalachian school that may have you know, 100 kids in it 
K through 12, and um, they're they're coming from all over these nooks and crannies and hollers right. uh, in the mountains, and uh, so it's, it's very different. And I know Alan does a lot of work in uh, Montana and, and uh, the Rocky Mountain region, and and so you've got the isolation out there in those one-room schoolhouses that are even uh, more isolated than the Appalachian. Uh, schools are so it's to me it's just it's been fascinating to see the different rural communities and how they're defined and even you know, up in northern California where you've got um, you know the the huge swaths of forest and and families that live up there and are, are pretty isolated but it's a different kind of geography so that's it's been fun when we have the conference and everybody comes in and you get the uh, swap stories about your different challenges and opportunities in your community, especially the Texas folks. That's a <laughs> lively crew that, that comes in each year and uh, been out to Texas a few times to uh, their conference. And, and uh, you know, you've got how, how many school districts out there, Alan? Like a thousand or There's something? There's a thousand school districts. I think they represent half of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So that's a good number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, Texas is... They have independent school districts. So there may be two districts within eight miles of each other or three. Mm-hmm. So they're pretty close together. Um, and I, 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 I'm going to echo Jared's comments on the difference of rule. I remember early on going to Montana and uh, the lady, uh, she's a county soup, which she county superintendent, where she probably runs eight one-room schoolhouses in this large county. And she goes, what would be a considerable small school that would be consolidated or might be consolidated in Tennessee. And I was like, you know, if it gets below 300, a lot of times people think about consolidating those Mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. And she goes, holy cow, 300 small? And I said, yeah, we're county. So we look at that being small, and they look at small being four. (laughs) Sometimes, which is not, I mean, it's it's good. But but when I went to visit those one-room schoolhouses, there's a lot of great things going on, a lot of technology involved, a lot of uh, really creative teaching going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty neat to kind of see those differences. Um, and I think Jared hit on it too, is, is we don't understand, in Tennessee especially, southeast, the isolation and the distance to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I mean do stuff is your doctor may be three hours away, mm-hmm. and that's a normal drive for people, mm-hmm. two and a half. For, for us, if we drove three hours in certain directions, we're going to be way deep in another state. Mm-hmm. And there's people in Colorado. I know a good friend of mine works for the Department of Ed in Colorado. She'd arrive eight or nine hours and still be in the state, mm-hmm. still be covering rural districts and not even close to leaving the state. Mm-hmm. Those are differences that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may, it's a little different when I'm talking about now I have a two-hour drive. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't complain about a two-hour drive. There's people making five- or six-hour drives. Mm-hmm. You know those connections and, and uh, travel and all that. So, uh, but there's a lot of great things going on in the rural schools. Um, and there's and, and bottom line is we all have issues with teacher shortages. We all have issues with funding. We all have issues with connectivity, broadband, and all that good stuff. Um, Sorry. So those things happen. Yep. Let me let my phone quit ringing yeah, and I'll sure. edit this out. See, people are already calling in. They're yeah, yeah. excited how about how we get on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, caller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're on with the, with the smooth jam. All right. So, um, so you mentioned some of the common issues, like not you know not having enough teachers, not having you know uh, funding for new initiatives, and then also the challenge of size, right? Are there any other kinds of things that we could sort of see in terms of American rural education that 
um, maybe listeners haven't even thought about as being one of the possible challenges? Well, I, I think um, some of these, especially isolated communities, um, face a brain drain on their kids not being able to stay and live in their community because they can't access a living wage career there. So uh, you've got this flight out of rural communities, and it's, it's part of the uh, challenge is how can you provide opportunities so that if they want to stay in their community, or how do you even almost recruit them to stay in their community and provide those living wage careers or access to them? So it's, I think that's a, it's almost um, a fear for parents and, and leaders in these communities of, of losing the young people when they get an opportunity to leave that they, Sometimes it's by necessity um, for a career, but also, you know, just for economic reasons that they can't stay. So I think that's uh, a common thing across rural communities all across the country is keep, how do you keep your young people there? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I, you know, I always kind of look at the national marketing of products or items and when you watch there's a commercial I think Apple did on a a young lady going through town with their iPad connecting to different Wi-Fi spots working on a project and I'm like if that was in a rural community number one she wouldn't be walking around she would probably have to go many miles to find the connectivity that she needs to do that project Mm -hmm. so it's the understanding of you know urban there's, there's support services, I think Jared mentioned wraparound services and some of those things in rural communities that we take for granted sometimes even, in, you know, our university is located in a larger city, we take for granted that um, other rural areas may not have. And yeah. I think those are big things that uh, people need to understand. Uh, I, I do think we live in a deficit mindset sometimes in rural communities and we have to change that and look at the positives and how we sell our community and how we look to involve our students. So if they're a part of our community and feel like they're a part of decision-making or some type of process involved in our communities, then they're more likely to come back or more likely to want to stay and be involved or uh, work and, and to make it better. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about access as well. And, and high-speed internet is such an issue for a lot of rural communities. and, and uh, Students being able to act, they might get it at school, but they can't access it at home. And I know a, a large cell phone company that gave a, a grant uh, to a rural district where they gave uh, each student in the middle schools an iPad that had uh, data plans on them so they could do work at home and work on projects. But they did not realize that probably a third of those students had no cell phone reception where they mm-hmm. lived once they left school. So the, the iPad they gave them with a data plan was basically you know, useless uh, to be able to do projects like they had envisioned. So um, it's there's challenges like that that I think people uh, take for granted in urban areas and in suburban areas that, that uh, access to you know high-speed Internet or, or being able to just run down the road to get something for a school project or whatever it may be is it's much different in these rural communities right yeah i would agree yeah but there's you know so many other things to sell as well as far as you know being out in closer to nature the environment to being closer to things that are important to that community um you know, I, we all look at agriculture or we look at uh, CTE programs or other things. They're, they're a lot of times very strong in those rural communities, even rural remote communities. 
Um, yeah, so and there's, a, there are, there's also a sense of community yeah. within that school where everyone knows everybody. I mean, all the teachers know every student in the in that feeder pattern. Whether you might be a third grade teacher, but you still know all the the kids that are in the high school, middle yeah. schools. Uh, I, and I had it, it was pretty cool that when I came to the school district in uh, Southeast Tennessee that. I started out in elementary school, and there was this this cohort of students that were kindergartners, and as they came through elementary school and then the middle high school, I I followed them in different roles from teacher to assistant principal to principal, and uh, the year that I left to go work uh, at the state level, they graduated, so I got to see this uh, 13 years of this cohort of students come through, and I knew all of them, uh, you know, almost like my own kids. I coached them and taught them, and and so uh, that's that is a, a really cool benefit to working in a uh, a rural feeder pattern. Is that everybody knows everybody. Got usually have small class sizes. You know, ten to twelve is an average class size in a rural uh, school, and sometimes even smaller, especially in your CTE classes and other specialty classes. You've got really low class size so you got an opportunity for one-on-one uh, attention from a teacher and 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 not just the teachers knowing the students but all the students know each other too you know your seniors in high school know who the kindergarten students are and so I think that's a great advantage of being in a rural community is that it's almost a sense of family uh, that you have yeah I think you're you're right I think it from anything extracurricular to anything club or organization involved with the school, the community, the school is usually the hub of those small rural areas, and that's a that's a highlight and a spotlight for uh, those communities. And you know, we know from closing schools or consolidating schools that the school leaves or the uh, is closed or consolidated, that usually is not a good sign for that community to make it. Yeah, uh, and 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 you got a good point about the school being the hub. I mean, that's where. Wedding receptions happen. That's where all the reunions happen. That's where you know if there's a an event with twenty or more people, they're calling to use the school uh, yeah. for something. The cafeteria, the gym, and and it it really is in in many communities the hub. And I I know when you were principal that uh, you would tell me when you're out for snow days that you still opened up the cafeteria uh, to provide lunch for those students and breakfast because that that's where they were getting their meals from a lot of the times at least a hot meal and so um i think people take for granted in more suburban urban areas that um they don't see how that school really the community revolves around it in, in many yeah ways. i mean all types you know food programs or or, or, or things that help you know, the rural communities and we didn't really hit on poverty issues but we, we do deal with the high poverty rate in a lot of those rural communities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, those, a lot of those students, they, they don't look forward to a snow day. Uh, many might think they do, but a lot of them don't mm-hmm. because of uh, they know they're getting breakfast and lunch and, and sometimes a snack before they get home. So uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting from that aspect, and I think people wouldn't understand that as well. Yeah. But I, I, for many students, the school is the nicest building that they see in their lives, the, you know, the cleanest, the nicest, because some of them that come from really abject poverty, uh, the school is their their safe haven. Uh, I know I used to take my teachers on a tour. I'd put them all, load them up on a school bus at the beginning of the school year, and, and um, 
go around and look at some of the homes that the kids are coming from so that they would have a, a better perspective on the challenges they're dealing with when they're outside the classroom and and they assign homework and, and these other things that they expect them to do at home and they see that, I, no joke, we would drive by some homes that it was just a dirt yard. The kids were sitting out there with no shoes on. It's almost like a, a stereotypical uh, Appalachian scene, uh, home scene. And the windows had plastic on them at, at the house and there was some cardboard you know, part of the walls, like an insulation that was sticking out, and and it, it blew some of these teachers' minds. Even the ones that had grown up in, in the area that hadn't traveled back into the far depths of these hollers where some kids were growing up. It's it's a, a it's an eye-opening experience a lot of times to see what some of these students are growing up in and why the school is such a meaningful place to them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Strong point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, um, I know at least in my own case, I grew up in rural Tennessee too. And, you know, I, I just remember, so one of my hot buttons is um, helping first-generation college students get into grad school. So, like, I have another podcast about this very topic. And I don't think people realize when you're coming from a first, you know, you're a first-generation college student, right, or even a first-generation going to college, people just don't realize that, you know, there's so much people don't know, right, about going into higher ed. And, and um, classic example was, like, when I, of course, shared in my hometown that I was going to grad school, they all were saying things like, you know, well, what if you get too big for your britches? That's a classic statement, <laughs> right? I'm sure you guys have never heard that ever. Um, or, you know, the other one was, is like, well, are you too good for your upbringing? I have heard that multiple times, right? And so, um, and then I went to grad school in Canada, so I had to learn to articulate. So my accent's gone, I've still got it, but it's gone away from what it used to be. I used to sound like a backwoods guy back in the day. So, you, you know, sound like me, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, it was funny because when I was growing up, uh, yeah, they, uh, you know, I'd thought I spoke clearly and concisely and then I got to Canada and nobody could understand a word I said and so I had to learn to articulate so then of course I come back and now I'm considered an outsider well you know I'm going to drop the Harvard line uh when I did get, when I was at Harvard yeah. uh, for a yeah. meeting I think Jared talked about the same thing I think there was a um a difference on understanding the dialect a little bit of, yeah now what'd you say and I'm like oh okay so I need to slow down yeah. and really kind of work through what I'm trying to say yeah. to folks, uh, and well, then vice versa. You know, there's their language gap to us is pretty Oh, gosh, evident. there's people yeah. from New York. I can't even understand yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. Or even, you know, a Southie from Boston. It's hard yeah. to understand. But but I think, you know, what what's interesting is in the field, of like, so looks like I come from the research side. So, you know, it's fascinating how much language signals poverty. Yeah. Right? And so the problem is, is that it's probably one of the dialects sometimes with the last bastion of prejudice. It's like if someone hears you with a really thick southern accent or, or some type of, you know, associated poverty-based accent, you do, you do see those challenges. And so um, you can get excluded just simply by signaling to others your socioeconomic status by how you talk. And they, and probably they assume a lot about how you vote. That's right. What yeah. religion oh, you gosh, may be. Yes. Yes. Uh, or if you're a gun owner or yes. by by your dialect. So yep. I think those are things that are kind of uh, you really. Uh, one of the things I've talked to people about is that you know rural America is not a 
you know, white America, rural America mm-hmm. is different uh, That's right. ethnicities, but also rural America is not one party. Right. Uh, so there's more diversity there than people really realize. Yeah. And I think that's been a big push. I, I think I hit back on a point about first-time college goers or first-gen college. Yep. I think one of the things that, and I know Jared's dealt with this as well, being the principal of a small rural school, many, many times I would get the students off to college. But I would also, when we talked about our teachers and our students and our community, that would be buying things they need from their dorm room. Oh, wow. Getting them started because mm-hmm. they just didn't have the background of, I need to bring sheets, I need to bring this. Oh, I mean, yeah, those, okay. so, yeah. Those things were part of what we did as a community, which I think is very important. Um, and see, my community didn't have anything like that. And, and it wasn't yeah, so. formalized or a, yeah. a concerted effort. It was a, hey, we know if we call the principal, we call the guidance counselor, they're going to be able to pull some stuff together for us. Well, and, and the way it was in my hometown was the top 10 kids went to college, and the rest of us were expected to take some kind of sort of skilled labor type position, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so my case, I wasn't in the top 10. So when I kept saying I wanted to go to college, everybody kept looking at me like, that's weird. Why would you, you know, because you're not going to these AP courses. They're not busing you to these AP courses. So what, how do you expect you're going to make it through college? I mean, that was kind of the attitude. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that for a lot of the listeners, um, I think that there are some interesting, as you both have said, there's some interesting, unique challenges to rural education and, and, and sort of, you know, while I am a data guy, I do think these anecdotal kind of stories are important because they, they, they give you some depth and breadth as to that experience. And like you all said, other parts of the country, that experience may be very, very different. Like what if you're, what if you're a kid that's one of those eight kids that's in a single ha- schoolhouse who wants to go to college. So what does that look like? What's that transition for those kids, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, you look at, um, you know, one-room schoolhouses in Montana, I think the number is like almost 40% of the teachers that are in one room mm-hmm. were actually in that one-room schoolhouse or and or uh, came from a one-room So school they came house. back. That's so, awesome. So, they're, they're, you know, you should have those, like you talk about data, so yeah. kind of uh, raw. But yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it is pretty unique. Um, and I think that's what... We want to, to make this podcast work for folks to work, raise awareness, you know, champion the success stories, but champion the, the causes that need help. Um, yeah. But also bring on guests that are working in a positive manner to help rural communities, but also bring on guests that are not as well versed in rural, and that's part of this show as well, sure, to get them yeah. involved and to, to influence and maybe have them help us at a higher level. So. Well, it'd be good to hear their attitudes because yeah. that may explain why some policies play out the way they do. Very much so. Because of it could be ignorance, which that's nobody's fault, but it could also be um, just a lack of understanding in terms of understanding the human experience of going through those yep. the schools. I would agree. I'm excited when we get Becky DeVos be a guest. I'm I'm looking at Betsy DeVos. Betsy yeah. DeVos. Becky. Yeah. Betsy. Bec- yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you, if you're that, waiting that's for not, that episode, that's not um, that's not going to be a great invitation. I can't get her name right, but <laughs> but it might help us. That's true. It might help us with the the angle. You know? Yeah, uh, but, but the you know, ignorant, the ignorant uh, no. country <laughs> educator. Yeah, but we, we that would be interesting to see if we could pull that one off. Uh, I will tell you, we're we're 
we've reached out to a couple of, uh, like I said, senators and uh, representatives to be on the show. Yes. Uh, and some have been willing to say, yeah, we'll work through your schedule, and some have not. Okay. Uh, so we won't bash politically people, but not yet anyway as yeah. we move forward. Um, and then, like I said, you know, all different types of folks will be on. And, uh, and maybe I, Becky. Maybe Becky or Betsy. We don't know yet. <laughs> but it'd be funny if her sister's name was Becky. <laughs> well, I'm actually here. I'm Becky. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, good deal. Well, um, we definitely want to thank the listeners for listening to sort of our introductory episode here. Um, and we will, of course, um, have future episodes being posted, um, either as sort of discussion form, similar to what you heard today, or, um, um, as Dr. Pratt said, we'll also have, um, some interviews with some key people and decision makers so to, to give you, give you all that the understanding of maybe where the mindsets are from administrative perspectives, from legal, from political, um, to help, to help you, the listener sort of navigate some of the, you know, some of the interesting challenges that come out of rural education. So, uh, any final thoughts from either of you before we close it out? I'm just excited about this opportunity and and get to engage with folks that are, uh, interested in rural education. And like you said, decision makers that we can talk to, to find out not only what's going on, but uh, from an awareness standpoint for listeners, but also just get some feedback uh, that helps us in, in the work we're doing as well. So um, it's an exciting opportunity. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we're, we're excited about the opportunity, but we're, uh, you know, um, r- really want people to be involved in this process. So I know our contact info will be shared. Mm-hmm. And we want to hear from uh, folks that uh, on, on story ideas or ideas of what we can bring to the podcast, but also um, opportunity to, to look at areas that were, may, not be, may not have been mentioned on this, this yep. cast. So, yep, yep. Thank you. Yep. So, uh, so just let the listeners know if you're interested in possibly being on one of the podcasts or if you'd like to share some insight, uh, information you think is an important topic to cover. <laughs> Uh, we'll be making uh, uh, an email address available on um, both the organization website, but also um, our podcast site when it is up. And so we definitely would like to hear from you. Um, and so from myself, Jared, and um, um, Alan. Uh, Alan from Harvard. Alan, Alan from Harvard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should just have an episode where you just go, yes. Yes. No. 42 just yeah. like one word answers <laughs> so anyways from, from jared allen and myself uh chris silver we're signing off the views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of dr allen pratt dr jared bingham and dr christopher f silver and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, 
The content of this podcast are the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.